Well, this has already been a fantastic service. It's just been great to see how God's at work in various parts of the world, to see that in Turkey, uh, to be able to be involved with uh, blessing a child and realize that God's at work in each child's life. And so just grateful that we've been able to worship together. And uh, as I share out of God's Word this morning, I want to begin by just making the statement that God is absolute and pure love. He loves people with a passion, with tender mercy, with an amazing grace that goes way beyond our comprehension of those things. And when Jesus was asked to identify what the greatest commandment was, what the most important commandment out of all the commandments, just as we heard, he said, hey, here's the first. The first is he pointed us to God's call for us to love, to love, to love God with everything that we have and everything that we are. And then behind that, to love others the way that we long to be loved. And God, Jesus basically kind of boiled it all down into these very two simple commandments. And it really gets at the heart of our mission at First Covenant Church. I'm not sure if you're always aware, but we have a couple of banners that hang here in our worship center. One on on the left and one on the right. The deeper in Christ and the further in mission. And that kind of is a simplification of our bigger mission statement. But our mission statement is to be a high-impact transformative community by going deeper in Christ and further in mission. The deeper in Christ is all about giving ourselves fully in love toward God, to fall deeper and deeper in love with God and with his son Jesus. And then the further in mission is all about loving others, loving the world and loving others the way that we long to be loved. I've been reading a book recently by Kevin Harney. It's called Organic Outreach for Churches. And it really encourages churches to go in the same direction as our mission that we've declared that we believe that God calls us to pursue. And Harney believes that he writes in his book, he says, If a congregation is gripped by God's love and lavishes it freely on each other and on their community, God will draw people to this church. God is the one who draws people and softens hearts. And I think Harney really has it right. It takes, it takes a lot of pressure of, off of us if we really fully understand that, that we're not primarily responsible for changing people's hearts. That's God's work. That's, that's God's, not ours. But our love, our acceptance, our, our showing of grace towards others does open their hearts to the love of Jesus, to begin to work in their life. So knowing all this leads me to ask our church a few questions this morning. Does our heart beat as a church, does our heart beat with the love and the compassion of the living God? Can people see our compassion? Can they feel our compassion? Are we fulfilling God's call to lavish Him, each other, and our neighbors with love? Again, it all starts with our love for God. When we do not fully love God, it is really hard to love others. If we're willing to, to, if we're really going to be effective in that second part of our mission statement to go further in mission by moving forward in healthy outreach, we start, we start by developing a deep and abiding love for God. Loving God does not begin with our own efforts. It's based on the awareness that God was passionately seeking us long before we ever sought Him. Because of His love for us, we can become children of God. The depth of God's love was revealed through His Son, Jesus, who came to earth, lived for us, died on the cross for us, therefore taking on our sins and offering us forgiveness for our sins. 
And so as we're grounded in God's love for us, as we begin to walk in this love, we're going to continue to grow in our love for people and our love for God. And if we have an outreach problem, whether individually or as a church, it points to a passion of God problem. It's really about being passionate for God. It's a reminder for us not to lose our first love and to be focused on that love that God lavishes upon us. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave. Love gifts. When a congregation's heart pounds hard for God, we give of ourselves, we give of our time, our resources, our lives to love others. When we love God fully, this giving of ourselves, it doesn't feel like an obligation or a a checklist that we have to do. It really becomes reaching out to the lost with love as an organic overflow of our heart that is full of God's love, a heart that is intimate and close to God. So if we want to follow someone as an example who really lived this rhythm out well, we don't need to look any further than Jesus in the Gospels. We see over and over again Jesus uh, just passionately in the midst of his love uh, for the Father and the Father's love for him and living out of that love and demonstrating that love to others. Then I want to look at this story, that the second passage that was read this morning out of Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. And it's in this passage that we see that, that, that really uh, Jesus reaches out with God's love and he breaks down all the barriers He breaks down all the barriers that people have put between us and God. And he reaches out in a way that demonstrates that God's love knows no boundaries. This story is a great example of one of the things that I love about Jesus the most. And it's what I try to exemplify in my own life. And I'm not perfect in this, and I blow it probably frequently. But I hope someday someone's going to complain about me the way that they complained about Jesus in this passage. So here we see Jesus, he's daring to associate with sinners. And he gets called on the carpet for it. But, uh, but he's okay with that. Because it gives him yet another opportunity to teach people about the love of God and to show it in a way that anyone could relate to it. So it's so easy for us to say that God loves everybody. It's another thing to hang out around people that you're not always comfortable being with simply because God loves them. So let's look again at how Jesus handles this in chapter 9 of uh, Matthew, starting in verse 9. The scripture says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, I think we can find some some just natural, organic habits of Jesus that flow out of his love for his Father to others. And that's that they're actually exhibited throughout all the Gospels. We see these These habits, these patterns over and over again from Jesus. And these habits excited some people and they drew them. They drew, these people were drawn to Jesus. But to some people, these habits were offensive. They bugged them. And they really were, you know, they struggled with seeing Jesus doing these practices. And so let's dig a little deeper in this passage and see what Jesus practiced that either attracted people or caused people concern. 
So the first organic habit I think that we see out of Jesus in this passage is that Jesus calls all kinds of people. He calls all kinds of people. The Matthew here uh, is the author of the Gospel of Matthew, who, as we see from the passage today, was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were despised because they worked for the Roman government. They worked on commission by collecting taxes, uh, plus taking profit above that for their, themselves. And part of the deal was they could take as much as they could get. And so people never knew how much was actually going to go to the Roman government and how much the, the tax collectors were keep, keeping for themselves. And so the Jews especially hated them. They saw them as traitors, and they really despised them, didn't want anything to do with them. And so I wonder the reaction of, uh, that Jesus got from the other disciples when Jesus walked up to Matthew. And I wondered if they were thinking, hey, this is going to be good. Surely Jesus is going to call him to the carpet for his choice of being a tax collector and in his lifestyle. And so they're waiting for Jesus to kind of give it to him. And then, to their surprise, right, you know, their amazement, maybe even their horror, they hear Jesus utter words of an invitation. Matthew, hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Hey, hey, dude. You don't have to be on the outside. I want you to be on the inside. I want you to be close to me. I want you to, to walk with me and follow me. And I'm sure the, the disciples as well as some of the others were going, are, are you serious, Jesus? This guy? This guy's going to be a part of the core group of disciples that are going to follow you? You see, Jesus called fishermen. He called tax collectors, even a zealot to be a disciple, and a zealot was a person who was dedicated to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. I would have liked to have seen the zealot's face when he saw Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector, to come and be one of the disciples too. You talk about people from two different opposite worldviews coming together to be part of Jesus' core group. There's no place that I can see in Scripture where Jesus asks for a guy's spiritual or career credentials before becoming one of his followers. He didn't call spiritual giants to be his followers. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good. That only gives hope for myself, but it gives me hope for some of you as well. Okay? He calls all kinds of people, doesn't he? There's another organic habit that I think we can see in the passage. Secondly, that Jesus hung around all kinds of people. He hung around all kinds. I'm going to camp out a bit here in this point. Uh, Jesus would, he could hang out with the rich and the poor. At times we see him hanging out with the religious leaders. And in this passage, we see him hanging out with somebody who's not very religious at all. Look at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And this caused no end of scandal for Jesus and for the disciples. It got him into trouble more than once. I mean, there's multiple times we've seen the Gospels that people aren't pleased to see him eating and hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. You know, it's almost like the tax collector and the prostitute were worse than the word sinners. Look at Luke 15, 1 and 2. We see another instance where the same complaint was made. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, when I read these passages, I wonder, what attracted these sinners to the most holy of men who had ever walked on this earth? Jesus. I mean, think about that. It seems counterintuitive. That the worst of the sinners were attracted to the most holy man ever. So what was it about Jesus that attracted sinners 
to him. It seems to be his willingness to be seen with them, to be with them. Now, there's a mindset amongst some Christians and even some churches that says that we should insulate ourselves from sinners so that we don't get polluted by their sin or by by the culture. And there's somewhat of a grain of truth that if we're not careful, we can be the influence E instead of the influence er. But, you know, we look at Scripture, Scripture even could back that up. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. So, but I think as we look at that, it's also important to, to grasp the fact that Jesus did all the influencing. He was never influenced by the culture or by other people. He did all the influencing. And so we are called to be separate from the world in a way that we're not allowing it to tear us away from the love and from our allegiance to Christ. And to, we're, we're called to the kingdom of Christ, kind of in opposition to the kingdom of the world. But what does that really mean? Does it really mean that we should shun all contact with people who are not yet believers in Christ? No. No, it doesn't. In fact, D.L. Moody was kind of asked the same question. He was a famous evangelist from a hundred years ago, and he basically said, no, a thousand times no. That's not what the gospel's all about. Unless you're ready to move into a cave somewhere and avoid contact with anybody, you're going to be in situations where you'll have the opportunity to influence people. And by the way, there's nothing in Scripture from what I can see that supports a lifestyle of avoiding people who need Jesus. In fact, the overarching teaching of Jesus is, is that rather than shrink from society, we're supposed to invade it. We're supposed to impact it. I mean, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, hey, you're to be the salt and the light of the world. I want you to influence the world, not remove yourself from the world. So when we look at the example of Jesus in our passage here, I think we can find a really important principle uh, as his willingness to hang out with people from all different parts of life, that presence does not necessarily mean participation. Presence does not necessarily mean participation. If we aren't willing to be around people who need Jesus, then how are they going to hear the good news? You know, the good news that Jesus died for them, the good news that they can be forgiven, the good news that they can live a changed life. The good news that there's a heaven who awaits them in Christ. So as an example of this, I wanted to share a a brief story from a guy named Joseph Aldrich. He's a pastor. He's also somebody who's heavily involved in leadership of uh, outreach and evangelism in churches around the United States. And he was giving a message one time where he was talking about kind of his own wife and, and his choice about where they lived and what they did. And in this message, he said, when my wife and I went to Dallas Seminary, we decided we wouldn't live in the cemetery housing. Instead, we lived in the high-class red-light district in Dallas. If you want to get an introduction to life itself, he said, that's the place to be. We made a commitment to to take one non-Christian person, couple or individual, out to dinner once a week. And boy, did we ever get a liberal education. But what fun! We had people coming to know the Lord right and left in that place because we simply loved them. We opened our homes to them. You see, Aldrich gets to the point where he's saying basically by, by, you know, by and large that these folks are not going to come to church on a Sunday morning. No, they, they tend to see the church as being stale or out of date or irreverent or uh, uncaring, sometimes even judgmental. So we have to be the church to them. In other words, we need to display the love of Christ to them. So where do we do that? 
Well, anywhere that we go, we're to do that. In the workplace, in your natural relationships, in your neighborhood, in your interactions with parents of, of kids that play on the same sports team as your kids, in your interaction with sales clerks at the store, uh, as you interact with classmates or, or students at the school that you're at, anywhere, anywhere that you go. It's not something major necessarily. It's simply being a person who demonstrates the love of Christ in some practical ways. Maybe it's just kindness. Maybe it's an encouraging word. And maybe there's an open door then for you to share a little bit more about who Christ is. But let me say this before we move on to the next habit I want us to look at, that Jesus was a friend of sinners. What about you? Can anybody accuse you of that, like the Pharisees did of Jesus? Can anyone who's not yet a believer in Jesus point to you as someone who genuinely cares for them? I hope so. I think Jesus wants us to be that kind of person. He wants us to have the same kind of reputation he did. You know, get in trouble with the wrong kind, with the right kind of people and that kind of a deal. Because he's counting on us to represent him to those who still need him. Wouldn't it be great if First Covenant Church had a reputation for being a friend of sinners? I mean, it would be awesome if you went out into the community and said, what do you think about First Covenant Church? And the person responded, oh, that church, they love people, man. They love anybody. They love and respect everybody. Wouldn't that be awesome? If that was the reputation that we had in town? And if other people get upset with us for loving everybody that way, I think God's going to be okay with that. You know, um, I know a number of you are really doing a pretty good job of following Jesus' model in this way. I mean, I've seen it. I've heard it. Uh, you're a great encouragement to me. You challenge me sometimes in the way that you live out your life in this way. I heard a story about uh, we had a group of women from our church who last spring uh, did the Alpha course that we do every year in the fall. They did an Alpha course at the Ashby House here in Salina. I don't know how, how many of you know about the Ashby House. Ashby House is a is a home. It's a group home, a, a, a group community for women, especially women who've struggled in life, maybe with drug abuse or alcohol abuse or just other decisions, or maybe things are outside their control. And they're basically coming there to get help, to get hope for a new life, and to learn how to live life in a way that can be better, a way that, that can sustain itself long term. And so we, we have a partnership with them with what we call our Hope House. It's kind of a specific living arrangement for girls who are aging out of foster care and other young women. And so uh, some of our women that have done Alpha for many years called the director and they asked the director of the Ashby House and said, hey, we, we've got this great thing called Alpha that we've done. We'd, we're interested in seeing if we can come and bring that and do that with the women Ashby House. And he said, yeah, let's meet and let's, let me see what that's all about. And so they met with them and he said, oh, that sounds like a great program. We'd, we'd love it if you come and did that with us. And so they did last fall and they had meals with the women. They built friendships with them. They they, you know, there's a, Alpha is a great place to learn about who Christ is and about his love for us and about his purpose in the church, all those things. And so as they did the course, one of the other directors came up to our, our ladies and they said, you know, this is the first time a church has ever done a spiritual program with us that the women have really wanted to participate in, that, the, that they've sustained uh, regular participation in. And I thought, wow, that's a statement. I'm not sure it's a positive statement about previous experiences, but, you know, to know that, hey, there's a place that we did something where we were just showing 
the love of Christ in a practical way. I think that's what they were doing. And so they're going to, Ashby House came to them and said, would you do this again? And so they're, they're going to do it again this fall. We're going to try to do Alpha two times a year at the Ashby House. And so if you're a female and you want to help out, I've got connections. I can get you connected to that opportunity. And you know what? We're doing Alpha again here at the church in the fall. And so we need helpers and we need some leaders. And so if you've done Alpha before, you know what it's all about. I can get you connected. I know how to make that happen for you. But, you know, Alpha is a great way for us to live out this example of Jesus uh, interacting and hanging out with those uh, who aren't so popular in our world. So you had a habit of hanging out, of being around all kinds of people. I want us to look at the third habit I think we can see in this passage, and that's that Jesus saved all kinds of people. Verses 11 and 13. It says, The Pharisees asked his disciples after they saw him eating, uh, with them, he says, "Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" Jesus happened to overhear that question, and he responded, "I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." You see, Jesus saved tax collectors, he saved prostitutes, fishermen, even religious leaders who thought they had it all together, and then realized they didn't. And here's something to make note of: He saved them right where they were at. He didn't ever say to anybody, "Okay, I'll tell you what." You get your life cleaned up and, and quit sinning, and I'll see what I can do, all right? That wasn't his response. No. The instant somebody uh, recognized their need for, uh, for forgiveness and they put their faith in Christ, that was it. They were forgiven. And it was at that point that he started to work on cleaning up their life and their lifestyle. He didn't just save white-collar professionals. He didn't just save fishermen. He didn't save, just save women caught in adultery. He didn't just save Palestinian Jews. He saved whoever came to him to be saved. It didn't matter. There was only one qualification for Jesus to save someone. They had to be a sinner who came to him for salvation. Second Peter verse, or chapter 3, verse 9, Scripture says, He, God, the Lord, has no wish that any person should be destroyed. He wishes that all should come and repent. I want us to keep that in mind because it's very important that you remember that as we get to the last habit we're going to examine this morning. But let me just quickly run through the first three of the habits that we look at in this passage. First of all, Jesus called all kinds of people. Then Jesus hangs out. He hung out with all kinds of people. And thirdly, Jesus saved all kinds of people. So here's the fourth habit I want us to look at. And I really think it's kind of the point of the whole message. Jesus does all these things today. He still does them all. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, Jesus still calls all kinds of people. Jesus still hangs out with all kinds of people. I mean, He hangs out with you, and He hangs out with me. And that's a good thing. And Jesus still saves all kinds of people. No one in this room is outside of that. In fact, no one outside is outside of that realm of possibility with Christ. You cannot point out anybody and tell me that Jesus wouldn't want to save that person. I don't care if he's committed murder. I don't care if she's left her husband and is in a, an affair with, with another man. Jesus can save him. Jesus can save her. And as just importantly, Jesus wants to save them. And if you're here today and you haven't yet come to the point of personally putting your faith in him, then you fit the category of all kinds of people that Jesus wants to save. Folks, Jesus wasn't just a flash in the pan who came and did his thing and then he died and he went away and that was it. 
He's still here today. He's still moving. He's still working in the lives of people. First to save them and then to mold them to his use and for his Father's glory. Don't ever get the idea that when Jesus was finished and he went to be with the Father, he's still working today through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. So as I wind down here this morning, I'd like us to take a look at a couple of things I think we can take away from this example that we see of Jesus in this passage. First, if you're already a follower of Jesus, awesome, that's great. But now's our invitation, our opportunity to reach out to others on his behalf. Out of the love that we've received, out of that love that we lavish in, out of the overflow of our life, to share that love in practical ways with others. 2 Corinthians 5.20, the word says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Here's the deal, folks. I tell this to the class uh, that we, when we teach the Connecting Point class. There is no plan B. We are plan A. We are it. We are what God has given in terms of uh, sharing about the good news. Angels aren't going to do this. The plants and animals aren't going to do it. We need to do it. Jesus is counting on us. People need us to do it, to tell them about Jesus or bring them to someone who will. So if you're a follower of Jesus, reach out on his behalf. And again, if we're fully loving God, right, if we're fully devoted and we're just captured by God's love for us and that love is overflowing, then it will lead us to loving others to Jesus. And that will be part of who we are and what we do. Here's the second thing, though. If you're not yet already a follower of Christ, then I would encourage you to accept his invitation. In Matthew 11, Jesus gives this invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation is just as valid today as when he first gave it. He's saying that in spite of everything that life throws at you, you can find rest. Rest in knowing that he's there and to give you strength to live for him while you're on earth and for rest for all of eternity as you live with Christ in eternity. He's not saying in that that life is going to be perfect and life is always going to be easy. He is saying that you can count on him now and forevermore. Your job can't do that for you. Your relationships can't do that. Your money can't give you that. Your baptism can't give you that. Your family can't give you that. Only Jesus can give you that. But Jesus is a gentleman. He's never going to force himself on you. He just tells you what you need, and then it's up to you to either take it or put it aside. But my genuine hope for you today is that you're done putting it aside and that you're ready to take the free gift of forgiveness and a relationship with Christ that he offers. And if that's you, then I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Just a real simple prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It's just a simple prayer where you acknowledge your need for Christ. You're vocalizing your desire to be forgiven and to have the assurance that Jesus is with you and for you. And you're with Jesus for all of eternity. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And just want to invite you, I'm going to say these words out loud, and you can repeat them silently in your heart as I pray them out loud. You can follow me silently in your heart. So let's all just bow our heads right now, close our eyes, 
And let me offer this prayer. And if this is your desire, if this is your intention, you can follow me in your heart as I say this. Jesus, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Jesus, I accept you and your love for me. I'm sorry for the sin that I've done in my life. I want to follow you faithfully for the rest of my life. Be the Lord. Be the leader of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to keep your heads bowed. And I'm just going to offer a prayer for all of us as we close this message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving every one of us. All of us, Jesus. All of us are sinners. Thank you for hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the religious leaders and everybody in between. Jesus, thank you for demonstrating that no one is beyond your love. Lord, help us as your followers to embrace your love and your grace, for that to consume us in a way that your love and your grace overflows in and out of our life to others. Jesus, help us to be that person who's a positive influence for you and for your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.